0: Online Buzz.bornmouth.ac.uk
1: For Bournemouth
0: and beyond, this is Buzz.
2: Hello and welcome to the Hooked podcast where we discuss the issues important to you. I'm Liv Peacock.
0: And I'm Toby Foster. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how binge drinking, alcoholism and social media addiction are becoming increasingly major problems within the student community and beyond.
2: We'll talk with experts on addiction, find out the views of students themselves and also hear some personal stories along the way.
0: However, alcohol addiction is not the only issue blighting the student community. What many people may not realise is that many students find it difficult to put their phones down.
2: Yeah, now that I think about it, most people I know, including myself, even take their phones in the shower.
0: <laughs> I can't say I quite do the same, but phone addiction is a problem, even if many people don't even realise they're addicted.
2: As we mentioned earlier, we'll also be talking about the problems surrounding student drinking, which could lead to an unhealthy relationship with alcohol later on in life.
0: Doing some research before the show today, we found that 58% of adults have drunk alcohol within the last week, and 28% of those exceeded the 14 units recommended by Public Health England, so it could be said that almost half of them are taking things too far. I have a personal story when it comes to alcohol consumption, because back in February I decided to to take a leave of drinking alcohol and see whether my health improved if I, if I gave up drinking. And eight months on, I haven't touched alcohol since. And it's, it's made me feel a lot healthier and a lot brighter, less tired. And, and I found it to be a really positive health change.
2: And I am the complete opposite. (laughs) I had a bottle of wine last night, obviously, just because it was Halloween.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't think you're the only one. On a more serious note, we see that statistics have shown half of all A&E admissions now after 6pm are alcohol related. And we see how so many people now are just drinking too much on nights out and a lot of them are ending up in hospital rather than in the club.
2: Yeah, and especially with societies in university, drinking is a big part, and that could lead to many injuries. Here with us today, we have Dan Soloway, the social sec of hockey. Hi, Dan. Hi. Okay, any impromptu trips to A and E after a night out?
3: Uh, not for me. I um, know I've certainly had a few friends that I've had to uh, escort into <laughs> into the emergency department, but. Um, Yeah, I know, you see a lot of stuff on a Wednesday night.
2: (laughs) So as a social sector for the hockey team, how many socials have you put on that didn't involve drinking?
3: Uh, We do a lot of um, non-drinking socials, like during the daytime, we go out and do stuff together. Uh, It's not all about the nights out, but obviously we're at university, um, we do what we do.
2: (laughs) So obviously the nights out are a big part.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, It's it's the main social uh, event of the week on a Wednesday night, all going out together as a team. Bonding, getting very drunk.
2: <laughs> would you say that if someone didn't drink, they'd find it harder to fit in with the rest of the team?
3: Um, I would say that, actually. As much as I, I wouldn't want to think that, uh, I think that is, is very, a very good point. Um, just like if, if someone couldn't do something else, but the rest of them could do it, you'd feel left out. But um, we, we certainly accommodate for, for anyone in the team. You, you don't have to drink alcohol to be in the hockey team. That's not what it's about.
2: Okay, and um, would you say there's an element of pressure to drink within the societies?
3: Um, we, we uh, try to make sure that there isn't uh, too much pressure. obviously, we encourage it, um, but uh, if, if um, somebody doesn't want to, then they, they, they really don't have to. Um, yeah, we try to make it obvious that um, it's not a have to, but
2: okay, to and have in some fun. in be... terms of freshers, yep. how much of their drinking is on their own terms?
3: um okay so well uh as i said uh yeah they do uh, at the end of the day they do have a choice but we do we do push it more on the freshers um when i was a fresher it, it happened to me and and i look back on it and it was it was a great year being a fresher <laughs> however yeah th- at the time it may, may seem like a bit um like a bit <laughs> interesting but yeah um <laughs> yeah no but we uh we make sure that the freshers know that like if they don't want to they really don't have to but I will encourage it. Have a good time.
2: Yeah, of course. And have you ever been concerned that someone in your team has started to become too dependent on drink, or maybe drinks a bit too much?
3: Um, I have thought that, and I've thought that about myself sometimes as well, um, uh, because of it being introduced so much into the, the sport as well. Um, it, you start to then depend on it, and then you start to do it more and. Yeah, I mean, I have seen it with myself and a couple of my friends as well, and it is a it is a problem, but um, it's it's not something I feel like has gone way too far. It's not something where where somebody needs to get help to do it. Like we can kind of, but we look out for each other. We're all mates.
2: Okay, well that's good to know that uni like. Light- response to friends culture and everything and thank you for speaking to us
3: no worries thank you very much
0: thanks very much dan for a different perspective now we're joined in the studio by a member of a popular mutual aid fellowship for alcohol addiction who for the purpose of this podcast we'll be calling julie and sam robinson from street scene addiction recovery if i could start first with you julie could you please tell us how you first wanted to uh seek help for alcoholism and how that help has assisted you in in your life
4: oh hi yeah um Uh, I think I got to the point of realising that alcohol was becoming a problem for me um, when I stopped being able to really cope with life. So um, I'm a normal local person, I'm a mum, I've got a job, I've got a house, husband, all of that. But um, over a long period of time, um, you know, listening to students, I've got a daughter at at uni... um, you know, it's it's so ingrained in, in our culture that, that we just drink um, as a matter of course. And it got to my early 40s when I thought that I was just using alcohol to numb all my pain. Um, I know this is a podcast also about sort of mental health and... and because I didn't realise it, I was I was using alcohol to help my mental health problems, or I th- what I thought was my mental health problem, um, to, you know, helping it, um, and all it was doing was was c- the complete opposite. It was only ever making anything worse. Um, so what happened was is that it, 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 I had a bit of a wake up call. Um, I had a lot of things. There were consequences that were going to happen to me. I knew that. Um, I'm really ashamed to say it, but I had drink driving in my, in my um, history. Um, I knew that I could have easily lost my job as well and I could see these things coming up really quickly. And I thought, I have to stop this. I, I didn't know how to, um, but it, it was either stop or things were going to just spiral out of control.
0: And... and- To Sam, um, we see that, um, as you say, you sought help and there are various organisations that will help. One of these is Street Scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, And could you give us an insight into the work your organisation does and how you help recovering alcoholics?
1: Yeah, so I work for Street Scene Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Centres. So we have three rehabs, one in Southampton and two in Bournemouth. And we work with people with all manner of substance misuse and alcohol addictions. So it's not centred just towards alcohol. But the kind of work we do with alcoholics is we can admit them to the service and we take them through a detox programme. So alcohol can be really dangerous to come off without assisted medical attention. What can happen when you come off from alcohol is you can go into seizures and you can actually fit and they can shut your organs down. Okay, so it's a really dangerous substance to abuse. And so what we do is we medically support people coming off alcohol when the levels of consumption have got to a point where their body depends on it so much that actually they cannot stay functional without a level of alcohol in their body. What we then do is we support them through a series of psychosocial interventions to support them in learning how to build coping skills, to manage cravings, to build social networks out in the community. We actually get people involved with the popular Recovery Fellowship for Alcohol. We help people build relationships with family, with each other. We use various therapy methods such as cognitive behavioural therapy, group therapy, relapse prevention. And we work really closely with people about how they can make better decisions for themselves in order to stay away from picking up a first drink. We believe that, really, people that come to try and get better from all manners of addictions tend to struggle with relational aspects of their life. So they tend to struggle in forming healthy relationships. So we work very closely at helping people understand what it is about themselves and their behavior that they struggle to form these relationships. And we work through them with that, but we keep people very close. We don't tend to sort of work with them for a few days People can be in treatment up to six months and then live in a move-on situation we have. We have dry houses in Bournemouth and they can be with us for up to two years. So we believe that the longer we can support people, the better chances they have at recovery. And
0: how successful are your recovery rates? So obviously this is something that it, it can be very difficult to recover from, but do mm. you find that your treatments are effective?
1: It's a very broad question and it's very difficult to answer. Yeah. Okay, so I can't really tell you how successful our recovery rates are. Uh I can tell you anecdotal stories, so I see miracles happen every day. I was working with someone today who has recently asked for help, and I believe them to be at a place where they're ready, but I can't say whether they're gonna succeed. We work really hard at working with people on an individual basis. We have really good outcomes and we've been recognized for this recently. So this week, four representatives from the Chinese government came to the UK and they met with the directors of Street Scene at how best to form and shape treatment organisations in China because we've actually had some of the best outcomes in terms of completion of treatment in the country. But what happens afterwards, that's really up to the individual.
0: And uh, just to you, Julie, if there's somebody listening to this podcast right now who feels that they may be developing a problem with alcohol or may be struggling um, with their um, alcohol addiction or with binge drinking, what would your message be to them?
4: I'm really glad you said that because I wanted to come here and talk about, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot that can be done and, you know, um, there's so much hope out there, um, you know, and if you think that you've, you have you are trapped in that cycle, um, don't ever be ashamed, you know, start with your GP, start with talking to people around you and there'll always be someone to help, you know, pick up um, or Google it, where are my local uh, services for, for uh, drug and alcohol and it doesn't necessarily have to be the person you know that you the archetypal person that's you know sitting on the park bench it could you know you just be a normal person in society that's just can't cope you know your level of drinking has got to a stage where it's just you you can't function anymore um so you know do do ask for help um I did google um a local um fellowship that I've um, I've now been sober for four years, and well done. yeah, so yeah, really good. <laughs> well One done. day at a time, and all of that. But um, uh, yeah, I just want to make sure that people know that you know there is there is hope around. Make sure that you 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 open your mouth, you know, mm-hmm. be brave enough, you know, make that first step. Get the help you need. Get the help you need. Absolutely.
0: And just sorry,
1: is it okay if I come in on that for Absolutely, a moment? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma. Around alcohol addiction, around any addictions, and what can stop people reaching out for help is a fear of judgment, yeah, a fear of stigma, a fear of what people will think. People think archetypally, if that's the right word, I'm trying to it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that alcoholics are people who are homeless, living on a park bench, with a yeah. bag in their hand. It could be you know?
4: anybody. It, it goes across yeah. every creed, creed, colour, race, religion, anything that's really. It. It yeah.
1: Sorry. doesn't
0: discriminate. Just you as, as an open question to both of you, I could start with, with Sam first. Uh, a lot of the organisations that provide help to recovering alcoholics mm. are voluntary organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, what more can the government do? Is there legislation that could be put in? We saw recently that Scotland have tried to put in minimum pricing legislation, which does appear to have had some impact, not, not a great deal, but some. Is there more that the government can do?
1: So I laugh at this question. So prohibition equaled organised crime, Mm. right? So when when people really try to restrict substances, alcohol, it doesn't work. History tells us it doesn't work. You know, people put in harm reduction. There was a really good harm reduction scheme in the UK, or so say really good, to put unit amounts on the back of alcohol. What they thought that would do is people would become aware of the amount of units they were drinking and drink less. What it actually did is people started looking at how many units they could get for the least amount of money. And I'm sure students have done that. No. Right. I did I literally did that. <laughs> <time. Yeah. laughs> there we go. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So Absolutely. Yeah. I don't necessarily think I don't necessarily think about what different legislation there can be, yeah. but actually about changing the narrative. So for example, it's about challenging stigma. It's about supporting those that need help. Legislation is important, don't get me wrong, and I think that we need to put things in place to keep people safe. But I think really the narrative needs to change. We need to challenge stigmas mm-hmm. and we need to be willing to hold out the hand to the still-suffering
0: alcoholic. Mm. And last word on this to you, Julie, about legislation. Yeah, um,
4: I've not really got a massive opinion on um, like a, a formal legislation, but I do think that it's got to be about education and letting mm. people um, know that... I think that, personally, my opinion is that it's it's so acceptable to drink probably too many of us out there just a normal person is is drinking too much and not, not necessarily having a problem with it but you know I, you know i really take my hats off to you guys you know because you're exploring this problem you know and it can start from an early age so just education and talking about it and 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 just getting it out there yeah, getting the awareness. message out absolutely
0: thank you Julie and Sam Robinson thank you very much indeed for your contributions
2: Why don't we hear from some students themselves and where better to find students that like a drink than Dylan's Bar at Bournemouth University? We've sent James Gray to discover more.
5: Cheers guys, well thank you. Um, We are live at Dylan's Bar on Bournemouth University's Talbot campus and it's a busy Friday afternoon for us. And we're lucky enough to be joined by two students today. We've got Ross to my left and Max in front of us. So guys, I just wanted to kick things off by sort of like asking you generally. On a night out, are you keeping track of how many units you're consuming, how many drinks you're having? Uh, No, not typically. I wouldn't
6: say so because um, normally you'd go out, you have a few pre's, a few pre-drinks that is, and then you'll head out. And typically the point of pre's is to drink a little bit so you don't have to spend that much in the club, but... um, I think it's quite important not to keep track of how far, how much you've had so you can enjoy the rest of your night.
5: And I'll throw a little stat out there for both of you right now, so on the Department of Health's website they actually state that over the course of a week an average man or human shouldn't consume more than 14 units of alcohol across that week and they should try to consume them over the course rather than in one or two nights. I actually notice you've got a drink there in front of you, Max what are you drinking today? Uh, just a pint of Budweiser. So, interestingly enough, in a pint of Budweiser or in a pint of beer, there's roughly 2.5 units of alcohol. Um, When you're going out, are you drinking sort of like four four pack of those and threes and then getting more as you go out into clubs and everything? Uh, To be honest, I don't really keep a track of what I'm drinking. I think my mind's often elsewhere just wanting to have a good time. And I think that's just sort of matched by how much I drink. So, I'd say it's the last thing on my mind just keeping track of how many units that I've had. So on average most people exceed that limit, that weekly limit on one night. If you knew sort of of like having found out these figures today would you be more likely to sort of like change how or control how much you drink in future or is that just not something you think about at all?
6: No well definitely after you said that there's 2.5 units per pint definitely so because Max has had 3 pints here so that's half his weekly allowance in just one session after uni so definitely something to reflect on because Max looks like an alcoholic at the beginning here so yeah I agree.
5: And I guess we all have that one friend or person we know that on a night out likes to plaster the night on Snapchat or Instagram or etc. Are either of you that kind of person that likes to do that? I don't think either of us are those types of people but certainly in our circle of friends we have people that enjoy doing it and um, I think it gets to a point where it's a bit annoying when you reflect back on it the next day and you see yourself in certain states that you don't expect to see yourself in. Do you find it frustrating, Ross, when you see yourself on someone's Snapchat story the next day? Yeah, it's it's bad seeing it on someone
6: else, but it's worse when you see it on your own. I recently had a party, and uh, I woke up to three or four awful snaps of just several chins of my own on myself. So it was a really nasty surprise the next morning. So, yeah, it can be a really horrible surprise.
5: Well, there we go, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. And there we go. We've collected some opinions this afternoon. We'll leave you to digest that information. We'll throw it back to Toby and Liv in the studio. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much indeed for that, Sam. And from one addiction to an sorry, not Sam, James. From one addiction to another, have you ever spent endless hours on social media stalking someone's night out with a serious case of FOMO, the fear of missing out? Or perhaps just posted to let your followers know you're out and about?
2: I get FOMO embarrassingly badly. <laughs> and yeah, we all love posting drunken Snapchat videos to let people know we're having a good time. And we're always looking for a good Instagram photo to post after a night out.
0: It's not just nights out that we post, though. Social media, the arms race, has become almost a competition for who is the most perfect, who has the best life. We can obsess over who has the nicest body, hair, face, clothes or even house or car.
2: Exactly, and with this obsession comes the addiction of keeping up with this perfectly filtered life.
0: And we know that this can negatively impact young people's mental health when they compare themselves not only to people they know but also to the increasingly common profession of influencers who use social media to share an unattainable and idealistic image. We now have Dr Andrew Mayers on the phone and he's a psychologist who'll be talking to us about the impact of heavy social media use on your mental health. Good afternoon Dr Myers. So seeing as you work with a lot of young people how do you feel that social media has impacted their mental health?
7: Uh, I think it's probably worked in several ways. Certainly uh, there have been uh, instances where, where there is a great deal of negativity with with overuse of social media but we also need to understand that actually it can play an excellent role in raising that awareness about mental health uh, and about normalizing those conversations and sharing the stories it's just a shame then that sometimes that people will get as you were mentioning earlier addicted to social media and that can cause a a number of problems um, for, for, for young people uh, for their mental health.
0: So a bit of a mixed bag then. Um, would you would you say those positives can outweigh the negatives or is it the other way around?
7: I, I think it, it, it really depends on how well you manage that. I think, it, yes, they can. I, I think there is there are many reasons why we could use social media to support each other. But it's not just about the addiction either. I think some of the comments that were mentioned earlier as well are an indication that sometimes social media can be used to target people, to bully people, to shame people, and to stigmatise mental health. So so that's another negative, if you like, and I think so long as we use it responsibly um, and in a positive way, it can be very good, but if we don't do that, it can be very negative.
0: And is there any more you think that the government or owners of social media companies, we've seen um, Mark Zuckerberg in the news this week over... um, Perhaps not going with the government line on on some of these issues and trying to do his best, uh, is there more that those owners of social media companies could do to safeguard young people
7: I think there is I, I think there was also that example with Instagram where there was the the body image and um, and body harming that was or self harm that was was promoted uh, through Instagram. And I think when it gets to a point where it's clearly causing some harm, those social media companies do need to take some responsibility, and if they don't, governments need to take action instead.
0: Dr Mayers, thank you very much for your time this afternoon.
7: Thank
2: you. So we are now joined in the studio with our reporters Claire and Victoria, who will be speaking about the role of social media influencers.
8: Hi, so obviously the influencing industry has been getting more and more popular each year. For those who may not know, influencers are social media users, often on Instagram, who use their large following and audience to work work with brands and promote their products. This is often through professional photos, having a YouTube channel or attending sponsored events. It is estimated that there are now half a million verified influencers, over one. 100 million people on Instagram who have access to their content. And lots of time, the products that these influencers are promoting are often considered controversial, things like weight loss, strengths and diet plans, which can sometimes affect the way others act and view themselves. So I spoke with Roxanne Cooper-Castell, who is an Instagram influencer. I started by asking her about what she does as an influencer and what kind of content she creates
9: predominantly back in the day I would post mostly sort of fashion and beauty related things just because it was my main interest so like I said before sort of outfit posts beauty products that I was using so I used to do work with companies like Miss and Topshop who would sponsor you so they'd for example like send you clothes for a certain brief or you'd be able to just pick something and then you'd feature it um so it would often be just quite vain, pictures of yourself um, on your Instagram and nowadays I tend to do just slightly more sort of lifestyle, places I've been, things I'm enjoying, that kind of thing
8: What's the end goal? What do you see yourself going with it?
9: For me I don't see influencing as a long term career path a lot of people take influencing and just run with it as their job Um, I think it's quite an easy thing to fall into because you can make a lot of money from it but personally, I find that it was just it's quite a fake world. It's quite a facade. You know, you don't always wear the best thing every single day. You don't always want to look 10 out of 10 every day like it's too much. And I think for me, I don't see it as a long term career or a long term thing to be doing. It kind of was just something I fell into and would do for a bit of fun. Um, But I do see it sort of dwindling out in the future, really.
8: So being an influencer, you are obviously on social media a lot of time. Have you ever felt that it sometimes becomes too much and it's negative for your mental health?
9: definitely. I think I kind of stopped working with some brands because I felt like I had to compete with lots of very very beautiful women who were working with them too, um, particularly I found it quite stressful. I did a campaign for misguided in about 2017 I was up against these stunning girls and i just found that i was constantly looking at my pictures looking at their pictures and then just picking out every flaw in what i could see in mine and when you actually take a step back and you look at the situation that's such an unhealthy way to be looking at life and also there are so many bigger issues in life than you know whether you look like this in one photo and someone else looks like that in another so i felt that it it just wasn't benefiting me necessarily in the best way so i've tried to take steps to amend that really
8: As someone that has an inside opinion on being an influencer, do you think that it can be damaging industry for young people's mental health?
9: Definitely. I think particularly the generation below me. They've grown up on social media. They haven't really known any different, and sometimes they think they take it for Bible and they think that that's how people should be living their lives. Like, if you're not going to the next greatest party or wearing the next best thing or got the latest product, then you're not cool and you're not this and you're not that. And if you're, like, 13 or 14 in this kind of day and age i think you think that that is how you should be i've seen young girls of age sort of like 15 16 who literally look like they could be in their early 20s and it makes me question the sort of innocence of childhood is sort of gone and i think that's because of social media and the effect that that has on people's mental health where basically it's asking you to be judged on your appearance from day dot you know if you're 13 years old and you're thinking about people judging you for how you look I that that didn't even cross my mind really when I was 13 and it really it does worry me that so many young people's mental health is being affected by this industry and they don't even really know about it and I think we probably won't see the repercussions of this sort of technological advancement and the links to mental health for the for years to come because it will sort of come out further along the line so I think it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out but I do fear for what it is doing to a generation of of young people really.
8: On the flip side can you use your position as an influencer to help people?
9: Definitely. I think being an influencer is a is a thing of two halves. It has the negative side. It has the sort of trolls on social media, the, the comparisons, the mental health stigma all attached to it. But then equally, I think being an influencer and having such a large following, you can actually really use it for good. Campaigns, charity, charity things, um, raising awareness of issues, you know having having a following whether it's on social media or whether it's you're a celebrity in the public eye it's, there is always a positive and a negative and i think it's just translating now onto social media with this sort of new Era of celebrity, uh, people see influencers as celebrities, so they look up to them. Influencer marketing is massive now, so if you are trying to promote a good, a good case, a good charity, a good event, in order to raise awareness of of issues, of social issues, things like that, using influencers is actually a great way to do that because they can sort of reach people that normal mainstream media might not actually be able to reach. I've used it to sort of raise awareness of campaigns, charity things, and and it's been really helpful. Um, so you can't, you can't. It's not all black and white. You can't say that social media. And, and being an influencer is totally a negative thing.
8: It's quite interesting how she's aware of how dangerous her own industry can be, not only for others, but also herself.
0: Yeah, very interesting one, Victoria, and thanks for that. And it, It's very interesting how she was quite self-conscious of her own work, as yeah. you say, and that yeah. it, it, what, there wasn't sort of this blind n- lack of understanding about the damage that it could be doing. Uh, we're joined now by our very own Claire Stevenson, oh, yeah. who is going to be talking about her first-hand experience of how social media has affected her and her mental health.
10: Yeah so um, for about two years now I've struggled with an eating disorder and not many people know actually how strong the relationship can be between social media and the way that it affects how people eat and the way that you view your body and more importantly not enough people recognize that eating disorders are actually a mental health problem and that one2 million people in the UK have them and um, they have the highest mortality rate over any other mental illness so before my eating disorder started and particularly through the roughest parts of it my social media feed was just full of Instagram influencers who were just promoting nothing but diet culture and weight loss strengths and I spent just hours on my phone looking at top tips for weight loss and looking at charts of calorie content and it just made me think in a very certain way about the calories that I was consuming and how many sit-ups that I could do and at the time I didn't really realise it but this content that I was exposing myself to just completely affected the way that I saw myself and I was comparing myself to photoshopped images and these like unattainable ideals that I saw on social media Um, what effect did this actually have on your behaviour? Whenever I saw stuff on social media, like that just made me want to skip my next meal or spend that just extra 20 minutes in the gym or spend my evenings counting calories. And my behaviors got so weird and so just because I was at such a low weight Um, and it got to a point where I was just dangerously low weight that and I would still look at models on Instagram and feel like I wasn't thin enough yet and I wasn't good enough yet and I was just so miserable and I got to a point where I just really couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel and it affected the way I could concentrate I couldn't sleep couldn't hold relationships and every time I struggled and every time I was triggered by something I turned to social media as a distraction which just made the situation worse for me because of what I was exposing myself to.
0: And so what did you do to turn this around and start your recovery?
10: So it actually got to a point where I was at university and I got told that if I dropped even a little bit more way I could get pulled out because of how ill I was and it wasn't until I started my recovery process and started getting the help that I needed that I actually realized how social media was contributing to that and I spent a lot of time on my phone and I thought that for my own well-being I needed to make sure that I took control of the situation and made social media an environment that I wanted to be in so I deleted all the influencers who I didn't think put out the message that I wanted to see whether that be diet culture or weight loss and I I started following influencers who have real, real bodies and real lives and, you know, posting pictures of them eating a burger and eating a donut and just literally just living their life. And I followed them because that was the life that I wanted to live. And that was the life that I wanted to aspire to. And I look up to those influencers now. And where are you at now with your recovery? So just because I've changed the way that I look at social media doesn't mean that I, you know, my stu- struggle has stopped. You know, eating disorders, they don't just go away on their own. They take a lot of hard work. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's the nature of social media. It's it's as great as a place that can be it's also has very little boundaries you you're always going to see stuff that you don't want to see and things that may not help your own struggles and your own mental health but I think just the important thing to know is how to deal with it and you know that you can take charge of social media and find those positives and the silver lining in it and not just always the negatives
0: and thanks very much indeed for that thank a you. very powerful story with a very positive end in a sense because it proves that you can mm-hmm. recover from this this isn't you know the end of your life or something that you're always going to have to necessarily suffer with it's something that yeah. people can recover from and they can learn to to manage and thank you for that and, and actually using social media as a positive tool as well
2: oh thank you and that is all we've got time for thanks for joining us on today's podcast